Welcome to our podcast series, BNS on Aerospace and Defense. I'm Pat Hindle, Media Director for Microwave Journal, and I'm joined by our hosts, Brian Goldstein, President, Analog Devices Federal, and Vice President, Aerospace and Defense Group at Analog Devices, Sean Darcy, Director of Aerospace and Defense at BAE, and today we have a special guest with us, Brian Foley, who founded the aviation consultancy, Brian Foley Associates, to help aerospace firms and investors with strategic research and guidance. And he also formed Ab Strategies, which brings together investors and great companies involved in aviation. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Hi, Pat. Thank you. Hello. I will hand it off to uh, Brian Goldstein uh, for some aviation questions. All right. Thanks, Pat. Brian, thank you very much for joining us today. It's uh, it's great to have you as a guest. Pleasure. All right. Let me let me kick off. Um, this question is is for both uh, for both Brian and, and uh, looking for some commentary uh, from Sean as well. Uh, Sean, Sean has a special uh, affinity for this topic uh, from his background. So it should be a very interesting conversation today. So starting off. So how do you guys see the continued recovery in the aviation uh, industry? And do we see this optimism, the optimism that's existing, carrying through from all the way back in 2018? We saw this enthusiasm and we saw the market growing very quickly, even through 2019. But then with COVID um, and other uh, factors, we saw that the market really slow down. And so how are we seeing it now? Yeah, this is Brian. Um, you know, aviation is a very large, diversified industry with a lot of moving parts. But overall, if you're to distill it down to kind of a, you know, what what's going on in general now, um, it, it's a good story. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're an airline manufacturer. We see some nice uh, forecasts of in, increased production, uh, maybe even hitting, you know, some of the pri- prior uh, numbers that we saw before COVID. Um, over to business aviation, that, that's been recovered for some time now. There were a lot of people new to private flying looking for an alternative to the crowded airlines, and they discovered business aviation. And today, the use of business jets as far as utilization is, is higher than it was in 2019. Um, the airlines are still struggling a bit. They're maybe 25% below, 30% below uh, worldwide what they had been before. Um, but they're making some nice progress as well. Over to defense, there's been quite a, an increase in the defense budgets uh, around the world, and that plays well for that sector. And over to helicopters, Airbus released a nice press release in the last day or two um, saying that they see some nice figures there as well, particularly in corporate EMS, um, para, para public, you know, that that sort of thing. So oil and gas still seems to be a little bit behind the power curve, but, you know, in, in time that could help also. So in, in general, even when I add the pr- propeller-driven airplanes, you know, there is a pilot shortage and these training companies are doing well. You know, I, I can't really point to a sector in aviation that isn't doing um, pr- pretty well right now. It, it's definitely one, one of the best of times. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you. Sean, Sean you have anything uh, you want to add no, I to that? Think, you know, I think Brian hit it, uh, you know, really right on. I mean, it, you know, he, he covered, uh, you know, some of the, the changes and improvements I think we're seeing, especially across military aviation, right? Um, and that's starting to drive advances back into commercial as well. 
Um, you know, I think you pointed it out, right? I think, you know, Airbus uh, definitely has already, you know, has recovered moving, moving out very, very smartly. You know, Boeing, I think it's a little bit longer, but I think they're doing okay. I think the wild card out there is Comac, is what is Comac going to do? Um, the 919 seems to have made some pretty strong progress. Um, question, will, will, will be sold into international markets? Will it ever get outside of China? Um, I think that's one. You know, as Brian said, the, the industry is recovering really well. And, of course, the thing you don't know is things like cost of jet age, jet fuel. Sometimes it gets a little bit flexible. Um, like you said, flights are full. Um, the question is about expansion, right? Are they actually going to expand? Um, and, of course, we don't know that the other two wild cards, um, you know, it, was there will it be a soft landing recession. Um, and then, of course, government regulations. Government regs can always impact the aviation industry considerably. But I'd agree with Brian said. I think it, it's strong and has been strong for the last couple of years. Following up on your comment about Comac, do you think that with what's going on with the international and, and political scene, um, that that affects the expansion of Comac in China or the relationships between the, air, the aircraft makers and China itself and other countries? Do you see that changing the dynamic at all? Yeah, you know, China can do anything they want with a domestic program like that. You know, they they can insist that that's the only approved domestic airliner in China and make make it happen if they were so inclined. Um there is a uh, you know, fair amount of western type technology on that thing which might make it a little tricky as, as far as ramping up and having, you know, the, the service and support that's needed for that. Um, but for the moment, at least, uh, you know, Boeing and Airbus, at least for the next decade, I think, has some smooth sailing in in that neck of the woods in that segment. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the biggest question would be is would there be a, you know, you know at some point, if Comac is going to succeed internationally, they have to prove and build confidence in their national market. I think the challenge right now is. Um, some of their certification challenges and hurdles would probably help them in the long run, at least for at least for now. Yeah, we will know more, you know, five, 10 years. But like Brian said, you know, domestically, um, they can probably have a very strong play. Will they grow out and start selling into probably Africa first, maybe, you know, other parts of Asia, maybe. Um, but I think that's that's many years away before they start actually nipping at the heels of Airbus and Boeing. All right. So, so, so um, switching topics just a little bit here, Brian, can you, can you talk a little bit about the future of business aviation versus the air transport? Is their growth linked to or is it independent of the uh, ATR market? They, they sort of operate on a little different cycle. Like I said, they, 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 they started recovering in 2020 and, and knocking it out of the park in 2021 while the airline industry was still sucking wind. So they, they've had a head start on everyone. Um, they had an incredible 2021 and 2022. The number of pre-owned business jets for sale were pretty much vacuumed out. There was nothing left to choose from. Um, the utilization of business jets hit a record. The manufacturers booked to bills for a while were two, two to one, which was, you know, two sales for every one airplane they delivered. Um, so things things couldn't have gotten much better. We're, we're starting to see a plateau has been reached and we see not quite as much utilization, not quite as much pre-owned transactions. And the new sellers are reporting closer to a 1.5 to one book to bill ratio, which is still very healthy. Um, but we've, we've reached that plateau. Um, the momentum should carry over for the next couple of years. And 
after a very flat um, over a decade of deliveries, um, I can see by next year deliveries approaching the levels that we haven't seen in 16 years, one, six years. So it's something to certainly look forward to for the industry and business aviation. Very good. Thank you. Uh, you know, another question, what about, what about the health of uh, general aviation? Has, has the light sport uh, segment taken off in North America at all? You know, as a whole, general aviation's doing quite well now, particularly for the reasons I mentioned, the, the training market. And it also opened the eyes of people who always wanted to fly and wanted to avoid the airlines. Um, so that's been, you know, some nice powder to get that end of the industry going. Um, flight sport has been a mixed bag. Um, as you know, the FAA reduced requirements for certification of those to try to bring down costs. Um, they were a little less stringent on medical requirements for pilots who wanted to do that. And, you know, there really hasn't been a runaway in that area. There's just so many competitors right now on top of each other. I, I think that segment has to um, clear out a little bit. And at the end of the day, what I think a lot of people are finding is that it's still relatively expensive um, to get into that and, and fly. So it really hasn't um, developed quite as much as the industry hoped it would. Brian and I think exactly like I'm at. So <laughs> Sean, are you still, are you still flying the SR-22, was it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anything less than a Cirrus, you know, I just, uh, you know, and if it doesn't have two engines, I'm still nervous, but you know, yeah. I think trying to talk me out of that. So <laughs> See, he's, he's our general aviation guy. He, he's still flying privately after I've known him, you know, 10 years now. So, yeah, the industry's still hopping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how about the how about the suppliers, you know, with with when in 2020 and 2021, certainly the suppliers uh, were, were struggling. And so, you know, how are they doing and, and who are some of the major players and, and are there up and comers that are starting to um, make uh, some wind? And and some of, what are some of the new capabilities that they're that they're uh, creating? So you you caught me at a good time because I just attended a th three day conference on the west coast of the U.S. on the supply chain and and M and A and in aviation. So I listened to people a lot smarter than me in that segment and and did walk with a couple things. But that is definitely the long pole in the tent right now is supply issues. You know, when we think of the supply chain, it's not just engines, it's not just avionics. There's a whole thing going on with materials and components and parts. And that's really been challenged the last few years. First, just get getting whatever you needed. Um, while the market was increasing, everyone was kind of going after the same parts. Um, there weren't enough people around to, to build these parts or, or mine them or whatever might be going on. And it really caused a, a, a kink in the entire chain. Um, that's definitely held back the number of deliveries of airliners. Um, Airbus late last year had a reverse course and, and put in a lower number for deliveries for the year because they couldn't make it happen. Um, Boeing suffering that. The BizJet manufacturers are seeing it. Um, what's complicating that a little bit is defense is doing so well right now that it's going after the same resources that the civil market is. So everyone kind of wants a piece of it. 
As far as solutions going forward, the takeaway I had is there's a lot of focus on things like inventory control and just being um, smarter about, you know, how, how to order, how to store it, when to order, how much to order. And that seems to be the only thing that can be done right now because you can't really shake the kinks out of it, you know, with a, with a magic wand. So I guess I'm curious to maybe ask you, Brian, a kind of a follow-up on that. Do you see that? Is that across the entire supply chain or do you see it more impacting, for example, avionics, you know, Garmin, Honeywell, or do you see that going across into the airframers and the engine manufacturers? Yeah, to, to that point, one, one thing I found interesting at the conference is, you know, I've, I've always heard of the chip shortage and I'm there, you know, well, why don't we make more chips? But then <laughs> come to, I came to find out, as you guys already well know, that under the chip category, there's probably 20 subsections of, you know, types of chips, whether it's memory or, or power um, there's just a whole host of them. And what caught my attention was how each of these fluctuates. Sometimes you have a, a good inventory of one um, and availability, but then the other, all of a sudden the lead time, um, you know, you know, 10 weeks just got ordered out of, added out of nowhere. Um, so I came to appreciate that chips just aren't a chip. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's quite a subsection. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of moving parts that can go wrong if you, produce a component that has one or more of those um, chips, which of course they do. I'm happy to dive a little bit deeper for those who care about chips. Not not only are there lots of categories of chips, there's lots of different um, semiconductor foundry processes that these chips are designed in. There's lots of different packaging uh, that happens to the chips. And so there's a very, very complicated supply chain just in the semiconductor market itself. And then when you look at these systems being made out of thousands and thousands of different kinds of semiconductors, all it takes is one to shut down an aircraft uh, production line. So it it is a a very complicated. Now, just where is it going? Things are starting to get better. Uh, Things are starting to loosen up. Uh, People are starting to catch up a little bit. And so we think um, through 2023 uh, that this is going to really ease up from the semiconductor side. Yeah, and I'll say one other thing that's kind of unique to the aviation industry is we can't easily design in and out high-risk or, or supply chain-constrained components because of our certification process that goes behind it. So that is kind of unique. Another surprise re- regarding chips is I, I would have thought the latest and greatest chips were the ones – in shortest supply, everyone clamoring yeah. for the chip yeah. that do the most. But but in fact, it's the classic chips, I understand, that are, are the toughest to come by because the manufacturing process takes longer and it's just t- t- tougher to track down today. So that, that was a, an interesting that's, summary. That's a very good point. I will tell you from our perspective, um, into the aerospace and defense industry, more than 80% of the semiconductors that we sell are 180 nanometer technology or greater. And for those of you, so for, for right on what you said, Brian, is that those are the older technologies. We have products in the aviation market that are over 50 years, released 55 years ago, because once they're qualified in, they just use them over and over again. And where the capacity is being built out and invested in is in the latest technologies. 
And so there's a lot of conversation going on about how do we continue to build capacity for these older technologies so that they don't get forgotten in all this. Yep. Yeah, there's distributors that specialize just in finding hard-to-get chips that oh, are yeah. out of oh, date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, we could talk all day about this topic. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So can, can you talk a bit about, Brian, talk a bit about some of the new safety advances that are being made? And one of the questions we have, we do a lot of work in, in, in with these new LEO constellations, the satellites, and do they bring capabilities that, that will be implemented in, in helping you know, things like these lost aircraft that don't get seen by the radars. And are there other features of the LEO satellites that are, are a positive impact on capabilities of the aircraft? Yeah, I'm not familiar with that system um, specifically, but in, in general, um, just the sa safety factor that's been added or available at least to aircraft across the board has been progressive, you know, a step at a time. Um, for instance, you know, Sean in his SR-22, <laughs> serious, if he takes off, he can just fire up his uh, his, his iPad and, and have, I, I presume he has something like FlightAware that, you know, does a, a lot of the situational awareness work, the weather work, um, flight planning if you want to, traffic avoidance. So that capability that was once available only in the military or airlines is, is now down to the, the, the general aviation um, pilot. So that's, that's certainly moving along. Um, but those, those types of features are, are migrating down from the top down to those that could benefit from it also. Yeah, no, actually it's, it's interesting, you know, Brian, one of the things I know a lot of people are starting to look at is, you know, you, you, you know, the big question has always come out of with people like SpaceX putting so much bandwidth up on orbit what can we do, right? The Cirrus gets either, you know, Sirius, SATCOM feed, or of course, all of us now have our ADSB feeds, right? But they're mm -hmm. asking more about, you know, is there a way we can do better interconnectivity between aircraft? That actually goes things like, you know, detecting clear air turbulence. Um, and something that, you know, I've always been interested in is aircraft as a sensor, right? So instead of trying to do a lot of weather calculations, detecting bad weather, cer certain anomalous conditions, um, you know, every day you have thousands of aircraft flying around the United States um, alone, right? And we're collecting temperature, humidity, turbulence. We are collecting all that. So uh, interesting. I, you know, I don't know if it's got there yet, but I mean, with all the ability to have this kind of bandwidth, we should be able to send tons of data down to NOAA, for example, to update models live time, real time. Yeah. It's like the connected car, you know? Yeah. You can start <laughs> car to car and car to infrastructure. And we do it, but to this day, a lot of times it's still verbal. We still, you know, when we talk, when we're talking to ATC, we, we let them know, you know, we, we have moderate turbulence, blah, blah, blah. But it's a, it's a category based on my perception, not on an accelerometer sitting in the cockpit automatically. <laughs> as, as Brian and I both know, I, I think I had a lot of stories one year at Oshkosh about the difference between what a pilot who flies near the Rocky Mountains thinks is severe turbulence and people from <laughs> England think is severe turbulence. <laughs> so. I know that area. <laughs> that yeah. does get bumpy. <laughs> Very good. Now, I want to get into a, a couple of couple of areas of uh, specific technical areas interested in some advancements that might be made, being made and what we're seeing there. You know, can we comment a little bit about the, elect the airframe electrification and a little bit about advancements that are being made in pr propulsion? Uh, hey, so I think Boeing and Comac um, are, you know, both of those and even I think to an extent, 
uh, Embraer, Bombardier are, are going to follow probably Airbus in moving to a, a true fly-by-wire. You know, I think the, the concerns about safety and everything there have been uh, pretty much mitigated. And I think with the, the abilities that you can do with um, basically digital and analog controlled flight surfaces, I, I see that trend continuing pretty strongly. Um, I also see the rest of the system moving away from hydraulics, right? I think you're going to see less and less hydraulics. There's a challenge there, right? The old hydraulic systems that drop your landing gear, even if you have an electrical failure, are still pretty well proven. Um, you know, having accumulators and stuff like that, which the industry is very comfortable with, is going to take a little bit of time to get over. But um, at some point, I think you'll see fully electronic landing gear systems as well. Um, you know, one of the things that was interesting years ago, everybody was looking at wireless sensors for all kinds of things. They just still are stalled. You know, they've installed for probably 15 years now. It's just kind of hard to get to get those certain regulatory humps. I think as far as like, air, you know, the airframe itself, you know, we've done a very good job there. Um, I think some other neat things is, is you'll probably see things like electric tugs. But I think one thing people miss is you still have to turn your turbine engines on before you get to the takeoff line, right, or the whole short line, as we call it. Um, so you could see things like electric tugs and other things to try to save at least some fuel, you know, at idle. But I think the other one is, is aside from this propulsion, a lot of people have been asking about that. And, you know, Brian had a good point on some of the light sports stuff. They're the only ones that I see having truly electric propulsion, right? It's a propeller-driven aircraft. Um, and, you know, they, they I, I don't see that transitioning quickly to ATR or, reg, you know, the ATR regionals or, or even a lot of the business jets just because there's two two items one is battery energy density right batteries still don't have anywhere near the density of energy as jet a um, but the other thing i think people are overlooking is um, air transport and regional aircraft can't sit on the ground very long right the way you make money as an airline is you've got to turn that gate pretty quickly you don't have time to charge the airplane and if you look at your tesla it takes eight hours to charge at night or six hours to charge at night you can't and remember the batteries on an aircraft are going to be an order of magnitude bigger the charging time is the challenge. I can't see us getting around right now. But I, I will say I can I could see us at some point doing something where there's a hybrid. Um, I think Brian's aware of this years ago. A couple companies uh, we looked at trying to use electric motors into the gearboxes of propeller planes to give them just more, quote, torque on takeoff or toga, right? Take off and go around. You know, you might see something like that. What I could see is have a little hybrid model. Like I have a little Honda hybrid um, where the engine charges the batteries. It doesn't plug in. I could see a model like that. So only when you're trying to climb to altitude, you get the electric motor. So, Oh, really nothing to add. I, I concur that pure electrification and aircraft will start at the bottom with, you know, two-place two trainer aircraft uh, where, where that makes sense. And, and as you scale up, it'll just take, you know, longer, you know, de decades before you you know, see, see anything of commercial value. Um, you know, there are some exceptions flying around out there. Um, I think there's a beaver float plane, uh, that's yeah. electrified. There's some, uh, uh caravans, I believe, or some, something of that effect, but that's still, you know, kind of a one-off and has yeah. a little bit of proving to do before it's widespread. All right. Following up on that. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on the adoption of, of autonomy? You know, do we ever get to a single uh, pilot air transport plane? So what, what are your thoughts on, on, on there, uh, Brian? For me, that's, that's the direction the industry's heading, uh, for sure. You know, just because of the pilot shortage today, that, that's one way to address that. We're, we're not going to see uh, Delta 
airlines adopt that anytime soon. Um, we'll see it more in the way of, uh, you know, first drones and, and cargo drones, and that'll scale up to, you know, n- normal legacy aircraft that are equipped to fly cargo. Um, that could go over to the military, maybe some helicopters flying or some, you know, pickups of uh, supplies or the wounded. And that'll be the, the, the first test where they kind of earn, earn their medal. And as they begin to prove themselves, that'll flop over into the uh, civil side uh, with a lot of resistance, by the way. Um, in fact, we see some of it taking place now. There's some proposals to, um, during cruise, have one of the two pilots uh, be able to rest and chill out, which basically gets rid of the third relief pilot. And there's already a lot of pushback right now, but that's uh, unfortunately or fortunately the way the industry is heading. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think, you know, you said it well. I mean, aviation has led probably the the charge and autonomy for a long time. You think about it, we started with autopilots and, you know, the bigger iron has what are called flight management systems. I mean, these are very, very complex, you know, systems. I think if anybody's ever been in the cockpit of a, a big plane, you probably are very disappointed how little we actually fly. Um, a lot of this is done by the FNS. Um, and Brian pointed out UAVs. I mean, if you look at what people did at General Atomics, uh, leading the Predator and the Reaper, you've proven out an amazing amount of autonomy. But I do agree with you said, right? You're not, I, I don't see um, a bunch of passengers trusting um, two drones or two Autobots in the front of the airplane flying. I think one thing is that with the pilot shortage, Brian touched on that. I know there's some initiatives to uh, many times international flights have five pilots sometimes. The idea is to be able to reduce that to one. So it becomes a single pilot, lower work, workload. Um, something that adds to what he said is one of the things that I think there's pushback on is that um, once you get through commercial training as a pilot and start really flying a lot, most of your flying is not a mechanics, it's emergencies. You can only train for so many emergencies. Something will happen the simulator can't plan for and that's where having at least a pilot on board becomes critical because the machine can't figure it out, right? Very good. All right. I got one final question for you guys, and I want you to uh, – I'm going to ask you to predict the future. So tell me, when do eVTOLs become viable for urban transportation, and what are the challenges that we face in making that happen? So I want to know – I'm not even asking you if. I'm, I'm asking you when. <laughs> Brian, go ahead. I go back to what I said about autonomy. I think eVTOLs will first prove themselves uh, with the military where you don't have the stringent certification requirements that you have for a civil version and and cargo uh, where they can't hurt anyone. Um, I think there's a little much too exuberance on their um, and entry into uh, you know the the civil world. You know, at, at the end of the day, they, they they will make it into general aviation once they show a specific um, business case that, yeah, you're going to, you know, save money in maintenance. Your operating costs will be lower. That, that'll start getting attention. Um, but as far as challenges and speed bumps along the way, um, there's really not a good infrastructure out there to support them, either in the airspace or or charging, and I think they're even still kicking the certification ball around a little bit, you know, what, what makes sense. Um, so I'm not a big cheerleader for EV tolls and, and the air taxi concept that's going to swarm the sky with them. 
Um, so cer- certainly um, not not within the next 10, 10, 15 years. Sean, do you have a counter opinion? Uh, I have a really related opinion. <laughs> I would say, you know, many, I think, uh, I think, Brian, you and I actually talked about this a long time ago when this first came up. And I think uh, Jeff Kempter was one of the guys in our, when we were chatting. So I think very much what Brian said. I mean, you know, we've, we've seen people talk about self-driving cars. And a lot of people thought they'd be here by 2018, 2019. Many of us who have done autonomous systems said there's no way in heaven or hell they're going to be here probably till 2030. It's just it just you can actually map out all the corner cases that you just can't do. The same thing applies now. And now you're in three dimensions with an EV top. So I think there's a couple of things that uh, I'll pile on a bit here. My um, pessimism, you know, the other thing about EV tolls is you have to get over the fact that you can't just be a glorified quadcopter. Um, the way quadcopters work is it's very, very it's a very inefficient way to generate lift. That's a lot of energy going into that. Um, you're going to have to have something where you tr- have at least a transition or some type of phase of flight. Um, so forward flight is using some type of wing. You know, the uh, the battery challenge, um, as you guys probably know, um, you can't just keep adding batteries to your UAV because they weigh so much that ends you end up having something. You, you can't put enough propellers on to lift it. So the range issue is still there. I mean, we, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we chatted with a couple of startups here, and they're really looking at about 40 nautical miles. And so it's just not getting there. I will tell you that um, something interesting, too, is that if they're going to actually do them, they have to be quite autonomous because we have a pilot shortage. We still have not enough of us uh, to go around. Uh, Brian talked about airspace, airspace challenges. I just don't see. We haven't got quadcopters. We haven't had delivery drones. They, like he said, the the certification challenges here are even greater. But I'll leave you with one thing that um, a lot of the reason people want to do these is to solve traffic you know, to get around the traffic problem. And my thing is maybe you just fix the traffic congestion problem instead. So, I mean, the next best alternative is pretty strong. So. Well, now I'm going to, this is, this is the one that I'm going to chime in with my opinion. I'm going to be a little bit I more, the gong. I'm going to be, gong. A, I'm going to be a little bit more positive, And I do believe that this will be happening sooner rather than later, because what I use to predict the future is I look back to the show, the Jetsons. It's true. Go back to the Jetsons, <laughs> right? And so the Jetsons, reliable source. right? Reliable. The Jetsons predicted video teleconferencing. Mm-hmm. They predicted microwave ovens, and they have predicted flying civilian transport. So I believe that they have a very good track record, and I'm going with the George Jetson. All right. So, all right. So this has been terrific, and Brian, thank you so much for joining us. You have been a a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's been fun. You, Sean and Brian, uh, or Pat, you, anything else you guys want to add that you think that the world needs to know about on this topic? I just want to thank Brian for coming on. Uh, great to chat with you again, my friend. It's been too long. We'll have to chat a little bit later and catch up. So I did have one current event with all these uh, high-flying balloons going yeah. all over the place. You know, what is? what do you think? Is that really a threat to aviation? Is it really a threat to the U.S. or any ideas on what the three unknowns are or things like that? If anybody wants to conjecture. Well, I can I can I can give it a quick whack at this one. I, I think, you know, as far as balloons, um, Brian relate to this as pilots. We have to be careful because a lot of airports release weather balloons. And, um, you, you know, you'll be on final runway eight. You'll see this thing go shooting up in the air. It, it's safe. It's far away. But I think people don't realize how many research balloons out there yeah 
Um, spy balloons have been used for years, but some of there, there are quite a few research balloons floating around. Some of them are private universities, private colleges. I think what people have to understand is the big, huge balloons with solar panels are one thing. Many are small. Um, they lose power and they lose communications and GPS position long before they lose hydrogen or helium. So they will float around for a long time. Um, don't think they're really a threat to aviation. Um, you know, I think they're, they're usually smaller. The bigger ones are usually, at least you can see on radar. I definitely do not believe any of them are aliens. So I wouldn't even ask you that. <laughs> we can squash that one. <laughs> you, you, you know, I'm, I'm the realist. <laughs> so, what do you think, Brian? No, spot, spot on, Sean. All right. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you, uh, Brian, Brian, and Sean, for your thoughts on the aviation market today. If your listeners uh, out there want us to talk about anything, just email me at phindle at mwjournal.com, and we'll try to get to any of those that are sent in. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for our next episode in about a month from now on BNS on Aerospace and Defense. <laughs>